Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term that her penalty is paid, and she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. The next Bible reading is from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, and that is on page 784, if you've got one of those Bibles, or on the screen there. Matthew, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, And they were baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptise you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Uh, one of the great gifts of the gospel um, and uh, the great announcement of Advent, actually, uh, is that the Lord has come and the Lord will come again in glory, that he's coming in his humility uh, in Jesus Christ and that he will come again in his glory, the glorious majesty, as we prayed uh, earlier uh, today, uh, to judge the living and the dead. And Jesus invites us to confidence in that, because of that, actually, because he has come, we've seen him, we know him, because he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and that every tear will be wiped away. All alternative kingdoms will be brought down. Jesus invites us to a deep confidence, even in the face of all that goes wrong in this world and in our lives, all the evils that are perpetrated upon us, Jesus invites us to a confidence, the profound confidence of the kingdom. Uh, Matthew uh, calls it the kingdom of heaven. Uh, heaven is a, a difficult word for us. Uh, we typically think of heaven as that floaty place. Uh, that's not what uh, Matthew means by it. Matthew means by heaven just a way of talking about God without actually using God's name. Uh, it was a, it's a mark of respect, actually, uh, amongst Jewish people of the first century and, and prior, in fact, that uh, they wouldn't use God's name. And so a way of talking about God without using his name was to say heaven. The kingdom of heaven really just means the kingdom of God when God rules. And Jesus invites us to a confidence, a confidence in the kingdom of God. But that confidence can easily turn into complacency. Uh, if, like me, you enjoy an action or drama movie or TV series, I just completed my latest uh, TV series on uh, Friday evening, and you, you never guess, the good guys won. It was, just, it was such a shock. They pulled it right out of the fire at the end and it was a bit of a switcheroonie and it was just excellent. And, you know, and I'm watching this TV series and thinking, yay, because they're the good guys and, of course, I'm one of the good guys too. That's, that's what these movies do, don't they? they uh, and TV series, they invite you to see yourself, to put yourself in the position and know that you'd be like them. You'd be one of them. To make the assumption that you're on the side of the hero and that the victory is for you, to become just a little bit complacent. And of course, uh, religious complacency, complacency among those who name God, is the worst of all. How are we to have the confidence that Jesus invites us to without slipping into complacency that is deeply ugly? And so I want to use uh, Matthew chapter 3, learn from um, that wonderful figure, John the Baptist, after whom this uh, church is designated. Uh, we used to be called St. John's, St. John, well, we are called St. John the Baptist, except no one ever made that, thought that we were a Baptist church, so that wasn't working. Uh, so we're just St. John. But St. John the Baptist is our teacher this morning. Uh, three points, the presuppositions of the kingdom, uh, complacency about the kingdom, and then confidence without complacency. So first then, uh, the presuppositions of the kingdom. Uh, John's announcement, interestingly, uh, is precisely the same as that of Jesus. Uh, if you look a little further on in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 4, verse 17, uh, the identical words are there in English. That's because they're identical words in, in Greek, in, uh, uh, which are simply that, repent for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the reign of God, has come near. And it's worth, as I say, reminding ourselves of what John and Jesus mean 
by the kingdom. And in particular, there are two presuppositions about that. At, at, at one level, uh, the first uh, presupposition is that this is a world gone wrong. It's entirely obvious uh, in many ways, dictators, disease and death, uh, destitution and disputes that ruin relationship, the terrible Ds. Um, and uh, some weeks they more heavily weigh upon us than others, don't they? That this is a world that has gone wrong. But actually, it takes a spiritual discipline to sustain the conviction that these things are wrong, that they are deeply morally, spiritually, ontologically, if you like, personally wrong, rather than just the way that things are, just the way that things always have been, just the way that things always will be, that that's just how this world works, a kind of resigned, hopeless helplessness. Now, it takes a spiritual discipline to know that this is a world that has gone wrong from a path of right. At the same time, it also takes spiritual discipline to sustain the conviction that I'm not only a victim of these things in various ways, the dreadful deeds, but also an agent, a perpetrator of part of what is wrong with the world, that in some ways, from time to time, I'm a part of the problem. I'm not just a part of the solution. I might not just turn out to be always the hero in the story. So that's the first presupposition of the kingdom, that this is a world gone wrong. But the second presupposition is that God cares about that. That's such an inadequate way to put it, actually, that God cares about it. God passionately, deeply, with divine, infinite conviction is determined to do something about it. Uh, That is captured in the word wrath. I think it's difficult to hear that word other than negatively in our own context. Uh, But wrath is about cleansing. Wrath is about removing the bad to leave only the good. Wrath is the cutting out of the infection to leave only that which is healthy. Do you see how that relates to to the first presupposition? Of course, the announcement that the wrath to come is is getting close, is nearby, is at hand, the kingdom. Well, that's purely good news if you're not at all part of the problem. But it's bad news as well if you are. That's why John says uh, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they come, uh, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. John knows. He's not confused. The the wrath will come. God is committed to cleansing and healing and fixing. And you need to make sure more than anything else that you're on the right side of this cleansing and this healing. The truth is, of course, at some point, Deep down, everyone wants the kingdom of God. Everyone wants this cleansing. We all want this setting to rights, all that is wrong, this wiping away of every tear, or in the language of the the other John who wrote the gospel, uh, death and the place of the dead, Hades, are themselves cast in the lake of fire to utter destruction. 
so that there is no more death anymore at all. It's just come to an end. We all want the kingdom of God. And that included the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which leads us uh, to point to complacency about the kingdom. Uh, I'm not sure that John the Baptist was a comfortable, fun guy to be around, actually. Uh, I don't know that you want him uh, as a friend. Uh, Particularly, he self-consciously styled himself after another fierce, wild, even violent prophet of Israel, uh, Elijah, in his clothes. Particularly, the the reference to the belt is used of Elijah precisely. Uh, In his diet, he lived at the margin of society. Uh, He he just didn't go to supermarkets much. Um, Locusts and honey. Look, I don't mind that as a kind of an occasional you know, Malaysian treat or something like that. But it just, he says, his diet was. Like, that's all he ate. Locusts and honey. He lived at the margin. And, of course, like many prophets, it's from the margin that he did his best work. And Matthew affirms this identification of John as a a prophet, as one who uh, cries out in the wilderness... Uh, who calls others to prepare the way of the Lord, you see. That is, who says to others, get ready for God to do his cleansing kingdom thing. And it's interesting, John has enormous success, the baptizer. Enormous success, at least in the sense that he was immensely popular. In fact, I remember when a friend of mine pointed out to me that uh, at least sort of initially, it, it was quite probable that John was much more popular than Jesus. So much so that the Gospels go to kind of particular lengths to have John say that it's not me. Uh, I'm not the main event. I'm just a warm-up act. Don't, 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 don't stop here. And that success included even the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, they come to him. And, and the great thing about John the baptizer, this fierce, wild, uh, margin-dwelling prophet, is that he is an equal opportunity offender. Uh, The Pharisees, of course, were the conservative wing of God's people Israel. They were a lay movement. Uh, They weren't religious officials. They weren't priests or hadn't been ordained. They weren't ministers. They were profoundly committed to a purity of devotion to the Lord as their way of preparing his uh, way to come. Uh, From the outside, at a distance, it's hard to see what they did wrong. Uh, Why is it that John would include the Pharisees in his description of these people who came to him as a brood of vipers. Uh, One commentator uh, suggested uh, that the the term vipers was a particularly interesting term. Uh, Vipers apparently eat their way out of the womb of their mother and so kill their mother as they come out. And that's regarded as only fair in the time because the mother would often kill the father viper. Anyway, it was a whole very interesting sort of series, but vipers has a whole lot more insult to it than you might think. Up closer, however, it becomes clearer. You see, the Pharisees allowed their purity to become a weapon. They pushed themselves up by putting others down. The name Pharisee literally means separated one, which is great if it means separated from evil, but not great if it means separated from people. They're a brood of vipers. On the other hand, uh, if the Pharisees were the conservative wing of God's people, Israel, the Sadducees were the progressive wing 
of God's people, Israel. They had decided that there was no point trying to beat Rome uh, and if you can't beat them, then what do you do? You join them. And that's what they've done. If survival meant compromise, so be it. And I think from uh, our point of view, at one level, it's easy to, uh, at, at a distance to despise this. But in the moment, the desire for survival will lead us to make all sorts of interesting choices. And the point is that they have the promises of God on their side. They're God's people, Israel. They take seriously the presuppositions of the kingdom, that this is a world that has gone wrong and that God cares about it and will do something about it. They hear the promises of God. They believe the promises of God. They're confident about the promises of God, as they should be, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But they've allowed that confidence to slip into a terrible complacency. They've allowed that confidence to become a presumption. Do you see how John puts it? Verse 9, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Uh, This is incredibly challenging. Um, the, The promise was to the children of Abraham. God's promise was to make Abraham the father of many nations, to multiply his children as many as the grains of sand on the seashore. The Pharisees and the Sadducees knew it. They were the direct inheritors of the promise of God. They knew it and they loved it. And ultimately, they'd come to presume upon it. And John is brutal. From these stones... Descent from Abraham may be necessary. And in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes about how that works for you and for me, a Hungarian, and so on. It may be necessary, but it's not sufficient. God can make from rocks children of Abraham. A status, whether blood, descent, or even a historical conversion or confession of faith, these are good things. They're good things. But they're not sufficient things. But don't hear John throwing out the baby with the bathwater and killing confidence along with complacency. So how do we thread this needle? How do we have confidence without complacency? Notice John's instruction to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verse 8 is simply bear fruit worthy of repentance. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. It's a lovely image, this idea of a a, a tree with with fruit. And um, uh, it's an image that is used again and again. Uh, John uses it. Uh, Jesus uses it. The New Testament sticks with it. It's a great image because... It does two things at the same time. On the one hand, um, there is the content of the fruit. What is, what is the fruit that we're to bear? Well, that's a life well lived, isn't it? Uh, not the compromise of the Sadducees, not the self-righteousness and contempt of other of the Pharisees. No, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's the fruit that we're to bear. And at the same time, What's clear in this metaphor is that underneath the fruit is a root. 
that the fruit is not the tree, the fruit is not the root, those are deeper and more fundamental realities that when they're in place and when they're healthy, they lead to the fruit. The fruit is the sign of a healthy tree, but isn't health in and of itself. And so what is? What is the root? Uh, I don't know whether John actually baptised the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We're not told. I, I, I don't imagine that they were, you know, would stick around much longer uh, and John, as, uh, as John spoke to them. Presumably they went off in a half. But he did baptise some. And you'll notice who he baptised. In verse 6, it's those who were confessing their sins. Uh, there is a deep, fundamental, profound paradox here, which is one of the most spiritually important realities that you can ever get a hold of. Those who presume they are inheritors of the kingdom actually find themselves on the wrong side of God's wrath precisely because of their presumption. And at the same time, those who know they have no right to presume and confess their sins and never stop confessing their sins, that there are parts of their lives that are anti-kingdom. There are parts of their lives that are precisely the things for which the wrath of God is needed to clean out those who are not presumptuous. Well, they're assured of the washing away of their sins. You presume, you don't get it. You don't presume, you do get it. Do you see? And actually, it, you've got to take that one step further and see how important it is to never move from that assurance that comes with, in John's case, baptism. That you never move from assurance or confidence to presumption. Imagine that you're there with John. Right? I mean, put yourself there in the Jordan. You're, you're, it's going to be the new Israel. We're, we're crossing the Jordan again. It's, we're doing it right this time. And you confess you're forgiven and you're baptised and you amend your life. And then you notice that others don't. And the Pharisees keep on smugly separating and the Sadducees keep on miserably compromising. And you see the danger after a year or two or five or twenty the danger that you yourself begin to become presumptuous. Of course not them. They're not in. Of course me. I am in. What can keep us humble of heart, confident without complacency, soft and tender toward God and therefore toward others? What the baptizer knew was that he was preparing the way for the Lord, for Jesus. But what he didn't know and never really saw 
was how that way went. It went to the cross. Because it turns out that the Lord's way was to be the one who only ever bore good fruit. That Jesus was an oak of righteousness. And yet the axe of God's judgment fell on him. He was himself cut down and thrown into the fire of God's wrath. Precisely so that you and I would never be touched by the axe. That we would never feel the dreadful consuming ferocity of the fire. And it's only as you see him, it's only as you grasp that grace and love and mercy that you will never stop being soft-hearted and of tender soul toward God. Because in the face of Jesus, you can never really become complacent. And at the same time, in the face of Jesus, you never have to fall back into fearfulness because he has quenched the unquenchable fire in the power of his indestructible life. Uh, This is a week where as a community we have wanted the kingdom of God with, I suspect, greater clarity and greater desperation than other weeks. We have mourned the death of a dear brother and we gather tomorrow to do that together. Uh, One of the prayers in the funeral service, as we thank God for the life of uh, the person, is that we pray to preserve among us the good of his example. And I want to suggest this as one of the most excellent examples that we have in Sohi. There was a softness of spirit in him that saw Jesus. There was an immense and powerful confidence. Too much, actually, in some ways. Almost astonishing. He he encouraged others. He helped others. A confidence all the way into the valley of the shadow of death. All the way into the face of the great enemy. A beautiful confidence. And yet it was never a presumption. There was a softness of heart and a tenderness of soul towards his Lord that never became complacency. Preserve among us the good of his example. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, um, We lift our hearts to you in worship and praise. For you are the agent of the kingdom of your Father. And you will fix and heal and restore and perfect. And we rest in that hope. Fill us with a profound confidence. Keep us ever 
from a miserable complacency. That we would be your faithful soldiers and servants to our lives' ends. And we ask it for your glory. Amen.